Welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist Radio Show with host Karen Rands. A compassionate capitalist is someone who invests their money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market and create wealth for all those involved. Karen shares insights and best practices for entrepreneurs to succeed and investors to share in that success without all the risks. And now... So welcome to the Compassionate Capitalist podcast and video for those that watch by video. Uh, You know, one of the things that we do as part of this show, of course, our goal here is to give people the tools to create wealth through successful entrepreneurism, successful investing in entrepreneurs, and also, you know, a big part of that. And for those that have listened in the past, for me, it's really looking at the economics, the microeconomics of what it is that you are focused on, who your customer is, what are the trends of those. And if you've listened to many of my economic sessions, it's kind of, I get excited about economics. And my guest today is an exciting guy. So let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about. So although economics is something that a lot of people roll their eyes at, it really is data and relationship between And the relationship between that data as it changes that dictates so much of the market for a company or an industry. And it's really can get almost predictable when you look at data, except for one of the things we'll talk about today is black swan events, right? Big computers are dedicated to this kind of thing. They also there. It's also really quite logical when you think through behavior that drives economics and all of how those numbers work together. My guest has done a lot of that. Metatrends is this this concept that teaches you how to peer into the future through economic forecasting and learn to adjust to the coming economy. That's straight off of my guest, Mark Perot's website. So I've given him trends of that. And as you're watching on the video, you can see his book um, behind there that is this bestseller. But let me tell you who Mark is. Mark is a 31 veteran of the financial services industry, and after spending his formative years on Wall Street, Mark moved on to teach captains of industry as well as the common man. He has presented to and directly counseled more than 10,000 companies, totaling more than $320 billion in revenue. He has earned expertise in investment decisions and behavioral finance from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University mergers and acquisitions from DePaul University, business coaching from Marshall Goldsmith, and his book, Metatrends in the Next Economy, is the highest rated economic econometrics book on Amazon. Econometrics, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Econometrics. So anyway, so welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much for, for agreeing to be on the Compassionate Capitalist podcast show. Well, thanks for having me. You know, so the uh, we, just to kind of uh, maybe flesh that out a little bit further, what it was is uh, when, when I graduated college in 1989, I, I was actually quite frustrated with the, the main economic um, theories of the day. There was a concept out there called the rational agents theory that Daniel Kahneman ended up winning the Nobel Prize in 2002 for proving that it was erroneous. And it was pervasive in 1989. Uh, people were perfectly rational. And if they only had access to more information, they could make better decisions. Well, the internet proved all that wrong and Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for proving that wrong. So what it turns out is we have heuristics. We have a a very flawed sense of the world and an egocentric uh, sense of the world. So the first presentations that I used to do for for CEOs and frankly investors 
in the early 90s, I chipped over a theory utilizing demographics to predict the future more accurately. Uh, so Metatrends, my first book, is where to, how, to produce, uh, how to predict the future more accurately utilizing governmental data. So it's free, uh, effective, and cheap. So, the, uh, so what that led me to about 10 years worth of cognitive research in how the mind actually works. There's some brilliant authors and PhDs out there, but essentially the advent of functional MRI machines and PET scans enables scientists to know what we're thinking when we're thinking it. So they're actually virtually dissecting our brain and how it works. So the beauty of that is it answers a lot of the uh, drive that philosophers used to use back from the ancient Greeks, even to modern day philosophers, proving their theories either correct or incorrect using data that's readily available and free. So what that enables us to do, which we're, we're just buttoning up our second book here, um, tentatively we're entitling it, When Darwin Goes to B-School. So if you see economic trends through the lens of e evolutionary theory, everything becomes significantly more accurate. So my first book, uh, it, it would be able to increase your forecasting by about 75%. We tell you about 75% of the things that will happen in the world uh, in the relative near future. Um, now, there's a couple of things about why you've never heard about it before and why it's not on television we can discuss, because I think that's really relevant for people to source information and to source it from the, the right places. However, the, um, the, my second book is about why we evolved to be so boring. So suffice to say that <laughs> the day we buy a minivan, even our car insurance companies knows we don't look naked. Uh, we don't look good naked anymore. It's just kind of that's how life goes, right? So picture there are predictable behavior patterns of people that are inescapable. The argument is we cannot escape our biology. So right. our, we, we answer to what are referred to as uh, Darwinian metadrives. That's a fancy term for we need shelter, we need heat, we need food, uh, we seek sex, we seek uh, mating opportunities, that type of thing. So what are the behavior patterns in our spending that actually are driven by those Darwinian metadrives? Some are obvious, like fast food. Some are not so obvious about it. A perfect example is there is no um, society in the world where women buy Porsches <laughs> to, to impress scantily clad men. So right. it just doesn't work that way. So what ends up happening is then when you go down a rabbit hole of really understanding the brain, you can actually understand the differences between the male and female brain, which is somewhat controversial, but not within science circles. So yeah. uh, the, the social science circles, okay, you know, uh, we want to think that we have free will, but really what we have is bounded free will. Like I can't just to suddenly decide not to breathe or decide not to eat, or I'm going to be like a, like a star unit today or something like that. So what ends up happening is that creates very predictable patterns. So it turns out the future lays out in ridiculously predictable patterns. Right. So the argument I'm saying is, is that, okay, all that other metaphysics stuff, you want to get into it and what have you that knock yourself out. If you want to listen to Neil deGrasse Tyson or his <laughs> ilk, I'm arguing is, I was very frustrated with economists and that what they were doing, especially back in the late 80s, early 90s, was that it was almost like they were trying to describe a supernatural event, a phenomena, not recognizing or at least not acknowledging that every data point in their data senses was a human being reaching into their pocket to create a business transaction. What I wanted to know is what causes the person to do the things that they do. And there's a whole host of authors out there that are doing some incredible work readily available and free too. You can download them off of YouTube. Uh, in fact, if you, uh, I'll make this offer to your audience. 
if they're willing to reach out to me, I'll send them a bibliography on where they can source objective truth. And the main way you cannot do it is the television. So if you're sourcing your information from the television, it is fictionalized. So what, what I'm arguing about that is there's a whole, a whole slew of anthropological theories out there based through evolutionary theory that essentially go like this. Whatever the behavior patterns, the mutations, the situation that enabled our ancestors to, to live long enough to procreate, well, that continues in the next generation. Yeah. So what we're essentially doing is attempting to use a stone age tool to navigate the modern world. And for most decisions, it works really well. Some decisions, it works terribly. So yeah. what we have to do is on the big important ones is chill, you know, find some legal weed or some scotch or something, chill. And you sit back and think very thoughtfully about the really, really important decisions, because frankly, our businesses and organizations like that did not exist in the Stone Age. Right. We did not have financial collapses in the Stone Age. We did have pandemics, but the situation is we did not have financial collapses. So how can we prepare for the next recession? Part of it is understanding people at a very intimate level. Sure, that kind of... so. A lot of good information there. Let me unpack that a little bit. Um, sure. So, because, and for folks that are uh, listening, if you go into the show notes, you'll see um, links to the blog that will have an image that when I first saw Mark do his presentation at Brew 10, and it, and it has this timeline of age and sort of the motivations of the natural evolution of how people go through their life cycles and their needs and wants change. And that's when it comes to business. And I'm sure when you're talking to all these businesses that you advise and you speak to, you know, when it comes to business people, you know, it seems like advertising, this idea of digital crumbs, all these things that um, drives, they, they feel like they can manipulate people's emotions to make purchases. But when it comes to businesses trying to identify who their authentic customer is and what motivates them to buy. Talk about how this, these data points that you talk about, it's not only the, the age and economics of that consumer, but there's also the things that they change, like the difference and, and societal influences. Like when we were having our conversation the other day, what motivates millennials is very, even at that same age point is very different than what might've motivated say boomers at that same age point, you know, decades ago. Well, okay. So let, let's unpack that. So what you have is that people are predictable. We don't like to think that we're boring, but we actually are. So in fact, very few of us will ever make it to the news and, or be famous or what have you, because we're like everybody else. It's the outliers that you see on television. It's one of the reasons why television is not all that strategic, nor is it all that beneficial for strategists. We need to source our information from better places. The flip side of that is, is that uh, people, um, their, their buying strategies, or oh, let, me, let me walk you through this. There's an author you need to put on your radar screen named Gad Saad. Now he's a pisser, he calls himself the Gadfather, right? So he's at a Concordia University. He's, he's a professor of uh, evolutionary psychology, brilliant man literally has the most clever studies of human nature I've ever come across. However, they will blow your hair back. So, and he's kind of an equal opportunity offender and gets a kick out of it, right? So you gotta be prepared. Like if you're easily offended, 
he's going to be happy about that, right? So, so what happens is one of the, one of his most brilliant uh, studies I ever saw was in the Middle East. There's something called a presentation of a grandchild to the grandparents. It's the first time the grandparents ever see the grandchild. So he wanted to figure out how much investment does a grandparent make in their grandchild. Now, I'm sure you got some nagging suspicions about this already, but grandmothers invest more than grandfathers. Make sense? So what he wanted to see, was there a difference between the maternal grandmother and the paternal grand, uh, grandmother? Given the fact that there's a dirty secret about human beings, very, people are, uh, very few people are aware of and really uncomfortable about discussing. And that is that uh, a woman never worries about the child being hers or not. That's how mammalian reproduction works. Yet there is such a thing as called paternal uncertainty. So huh. how much, how uncertain the person is, he was able to calculate out based on the value of the gifts that were given by each of the grandparents. They give an individual gift. So he figured out the currency value of each of these gifts and it correlated perfectly to how much investment or really how much doubt the grandparent had in that grandchild being part of her or his lineage. So the maternal grandmother has no doubt whatsoever. She knows her daughter is hers. And then the child is her daughter. So she knows the grandchild is her grandchild. So she gives the most valuable gift. Sure. The second most, uh, and really are almost equal, is the paternal grandmother knows the son is hers, but is not 100% sure that the grandchild is her son's. So she, he, she gives a slightly less valuable gift about the same percentage as the paternal, the maternal grandfather. So then the, the paternal grandfather has doubt that the son's his and has a double doubt that the grandson's his son's. So it gives the lowest value and therefore invests the least in the grandchild in various ways. However, you calculate out or analyze that investment. Now, how does that show up? What, what ends up happening is that there's certainty that this is fascinating that the maternal grandmother will be the very first one subconsciously, this is where it comes from. She will be the very first one that barks up when the grandchild is presented that she'll turn to her son-in-law and say, oh, oh my, I can't believe how much the child looks like you. They don't even know they're doing it. And really what that is, is a, um, an evolutionary adaptation to make sure that the, the, the son-in-law stuck around so, and took care of the grandchild. And that's adaptive to the human beings, but it needs to be reassured. So women spend an inordinate amount of time of reassuring everybody that the child is her husband's. That's why women tend to, uh, um, bullying in, uh, the, the, in the female sense tends to be reputational, where bullying in the male sense tends to be physical dominance. So what Gadsad does is then takes those studies that he does, uh, uh, kind of uncovering dirty secrets about human nature, and then applies them to um, business decisions and why we buy things. Like why do men buy cologne? Why do women buy perfume? Why do women buy lingerie or men do? What have you? So uh, given the fact that we're talking about the majority of all people, not the outliers out there that might be uh, homosexual or, or trans or what have you. So what that does for marketers is now you can understand your customer better. So my argument is if you put these authors, authors like Gad Saad on your radar screen, you're significantly more likely to understand yourself better, your spouse better, your kids better, your employees better, and, and best of all, your customer better. And what my theme is, is it's know thy customer. If you know the customer, 
And then you can, you can figure out what are the behavior patterns of a normal human being that were all really ridiculously predictable, bake those behavior patterns into your strategic planning, your marketing planning, your investment planning, all of those plans become more durable and more sustainable. Yeah. But what you have to do is kind of buckle up, be an adult about it, not be easily offended. Sure. Well, and one of the things that kind of leads into when it comes to, you know, in some of these incubators and some of the theories that have come out of them, they're, they're this uh, authentic customer is what they hmm. are talking about. And it's, it's uh, where it's this per because sometimes people will go out entrepreneurs when they have a new idea and they'll go and ask their friend oh would you buy this right well of course they're going to say they're going to buy it because it's their friend and they want to say it and even when they go and they would you put money in this sometimes when they ask people they don't want to offend that person so they say yes where they're not being really authentic in um what is a problem with whatever they're doing because they don't want to offend this and it was interesting because when we were chatting the other day you talked about this idea that um the perspective regarding want versus need and the truth because there is no stick right that rational agent theory paycheck depends on people believing something and they won't change their mind. So talk about that within the context. I mean, we've seen it a lot with in general in politics where they just tell people what they want to hear. But when it comes to business, how is it that a, a CEO can apply that to understand what motivates that target customer to buy? Because they can't make them buy. They have to, yeah. you know, they got to need it and want it. And there's a difference between need and want and how you release your dollars. Yeah. So, the, uh, all right, there's a lot to unpack there. We could probably spend a couple of podcasts just on that alone. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with this. What, what, you're, what we're really guilty of as human beings is we are born bad lawyers. We decide way too quickly which side of the argument we're on. And then we seek only the first evidence that proves our side of the argument correct. Great book on the subject called Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Right? What he figured out is people will accidentally lie on anonymous psychological surveys because we're aspirational about ourselves. And the argument is the only thing that's a bigger lie than your Facebook posts is your dating profile. Right? So what happens, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that uh, how do we understand our customer better is we have to surround ourselves with people who are not friends. People, we surround ourselves with a Socratic circle of people who are like turds in the punch bowl. I'm the walking turd in the punch bowl. Like if you brought me a business idea, I'd tell you all the reasons why it's not gonna work. In order to make sure that you're, uh, you're uh, maybe putting it through a crucible so you understand your business plan better. So you start with possibility, then you move on to po uh, probability, and then you have to test it and test it and test it and test it. Like right now I'm testing a whole business, business plan for my own organization but it's going to take me about a year before we can have, give it like a little bit of seal of approval. Like, yes, this is worth us investing our energies and our resources mm -hmm. into. Yep. So surrounding yourself with a circle of people who are willing to help you do that. That's really important. Call it like stakeholders as opposed to buddies. Right. So that's the reason why some things stand up to shark tank and some things don't stand up. It's because they're wishful thinking. And that's, that's the thing I see guilty. Uh, CEOs are guilty of all the time. Their strategic planning tends to come down to, well, we were up 10% last year. Let's be up 15%. What's that based on? <laughs> yeah. you know, like, do you really understand your, your, your customer at, a, at an intimate level? I think I got most of your question there. Was there anything I was missing from that question? No, that, I think that, that addresses it because, you know, it's, it's uh, the stakeholder piece of it, but about the, the motivation of 
you know, the need versus want and the oh, that's the, that's the, the one thing I was missing. Stick, the stick yeah. piece. The, the, the needs versus wants. So what I do is I run an exercise regularly with my audiences where we, we create a laundry list of all the industries that thrive during rough time periods. And the reason why it makes sense to do that is because what I really want them to do that is with their sales force. And the reason why is because sales forces, now it's going to be a little rough for some of your audience to hear, sales forces aren't strategic, nor are they visionaries, right? So what they are is they're relationship oriented. And they make mistakes like, uh, you know, like let's say you're my CEO, I'm your head of sales, but Karen, his check cashed. So he deserves a relationship with our company. Like, bro, that's the first level of analysis. The second level is, will it continue to cash? So what's the methodology you're using to see, peer into the future of every one of your customers to see, is there, does their future look brighter or darker going down the road? In the next downturn, is their check going to continue to cash or not? And part of that's of the fact that I talked two CEOs out of suicide in the financial crisis. And frankly, my training did not teach me how to do that. I'm getting quite good at it. And I don't want to be, right? So like, and frankly, if your audience was a New York audience, I'd be using different words than long and arduous, how long and arduous that was. Yeah. But I realized is they were suffering from wishful thinking. So I don't like wishful thinking. I want to know that it's going to hold up in rougher time periods. So the beauty of focusing some energies on that it's not so much that the CEO has an aha moment because if it just stays in the CEO's mind, it's like we wasted our time. What it's really got to do is permeate the business down to the business development people. And the best way to do that is to run it through a Socratic exercise. And you simply ask questions and then yeah. shut up. Great book on the subject called Fierce Conversations by Susan Scott. Right? And what it is is you let silence do the heavy lifting. So Karen, you're, the, you're my head of sales. I'd be asking you, uh, okay, you suffer from what's referred to as actually in scientific circles as a Pareto distribution. In business, we call that the 80-20 rule. If you're a B2B salesperson, 80% of your revenue is coming from 20% of your clientele. First thing I'd be saying is, okay, in the next downturn, how certain are you that you can count on each one of their checks continuing to cash in the next decade, next downturn? And then shut up. Not like eyebrow raise, like I know something more than you do. No, you're having a discussion. And frankly, if you were sitting down, I'd be sitting down because communication happens between equals. If you're standing up, I'm standing up. But I'm asking you that because I'm getting you to question your assumptions about the future. Then you do that in front of an entire sales force. They all start to do it. Now they're in possibility. They're not in probability. They're not being scrutinized. This isn't a job interview. This is a, uh, an innovative process where what you're doing is saying, can we analyze the future better? Can we predict it for our key relationships? And if the answer is no, you have to start politely disengaging from those relationships. If the answer is yes, you embrace them even more. Then what happens is where do you put your energies? You put your energies in two things. One is chase relationships that will thrive in the next economy uh, and have it be legitimate reasons why, not just embedded logic, not wishful thinking. But the last part is simply this. Second part of that is, I don't want to tell you. See, when I, when I, often when I, um, uh, I'll call the CEOs the day after I've had like a real deep dive, take them out to the woodshed and slap them around about their current plan, uh, straighten them out out of love. They have like a morning after Mark meeting that I don't like. They're like, they walk in and they go, you better do this. You're doing that. You're doing it. No, you don't tell people. So my, my second book, 10 Years Worth of Cognitive Research, has led me to, to a, a, a truth about human nature. 
is human beings are built to make other human beings wrong and themselves right. So what you do is you ask the questions, have them build a laundry list of all the industries that will look great in the next economy. And then guess what happens? When they look at their list, they see no stupid ideas there because they're their ideas. Now you might need a little scrutiny, a little tweaking of it. I don't know about this one, a little asterisk over here. This one's got some other threats, that type of thing. But they're significantly more likely, the sales force is significantly more likely to invest their energies into their ideas because they think they're brilliant. Right. So, and the, the real truth of business is simply this. We like to think we're the propulsion, that we're the ones steering the ship. And the real truth is the efforts of our sales forces is the propulsion and the rudder to our ship. And frankly, organic growth sounds awesome if you're a vegetable. <laughs> so if you're a business, no, we have to impose our will, but we have to do it in, in, a, in a very sophisticated kind of way, win them over, get them to be more strategic. And then what you're doing is you're developing your direct reports to the point where hopefully they never, they never need you again, because yeah. that's when companies are really worth something. So that leads me into a, a question, because uh, when I was with IBM, you know, every year or periodically and even, you know, MBA school talked about this was that you would, and we see it all the time in real estate, what's the best and greatest use of this asset, this, this property, right? So when well it comes said. to businesses, it's, you know, there used to be where you would have sort of heads of things where they would, they would do this, not really a debate, but you would analyze business opportunities. Do we bring out this new product? Do we expand into this market? Where are we going to invest our people resources and our capital resources for the best and greatest benefit to the company? And so I, I don't know, you deal with a lot more of these types of CEOs. Do they, have they gotten away from that in general until they, they understand kind of what you're talking about? So they'll, they don't pivot soon enough. They don't invest in certain things because they didn't understand that e-commerce was really going to be this thing that would stick or, you know, whatever. Cause you see these companies that don't last, they, that have been around a hundred years and all of a sudden what's happening to them. Right. Yeah. And so what, what makes it, do companies still look at that? And as you were kind of describing, and you were talking about this list of ideas and actually do data analytics on what it, what are the economic trends? What are our consumer trends? What's happening to our consumers? You know, our loyalty thing, all those other pieces of it. Um, are they are they make in general? Is it a philosophy within businesses to do that, or do they have to have a wake up call in order to actually not just continue to do the status quo? What ain't broke, don't fix, kind of a thing. Yeah, I think I think ultimately the, the the Achilles heel for all business people is are is that we are um, uh, solid tacticians, and what that does is that that means they qualify to sit sit in the seats they're sitting in, right? Whether it's in an IBM meeting or in the private world where it would be they get to sit in organizations like Vistage, where they get to the, they're scrutinized, but on a regular basis they qualify to sit in there. The downside is, is what is our strength as human beings often becomes our weakness. So it's like their nose is like too close to the grindstone. Very few people are able to look over the horizon. So what I specialize in is rattling cages. See, people make a mistake when they see the title of my presentation or my book, thinking it's going to be some kind of economic summit. And it's really more like an economic enema. 
I want the person like walking out of the room or after reading the book, like a little uncomfortable, but healthier. And the argument is because if you don't pull your nose off the grindstone and don't look over the horizon or, or around the corner, is that light at the end of the tunnel? Is that a train that's going to come kill you? Or is the light is the end of the tunnel? So yeah. <laughs> my, my argument is, though, is that the syndrome shows up in two different ways. In the publicly traded space like IBM, they're old and stodgy. And you, what you get is silos of protectionism. People are afraid to step out of their lane yeah. because they don't want to get axed. Uh, so there's a lot of fear and distrust. The larger the organization goes, the greater the fear and distrust. So you have to be a really innovative one. It's one of the reasons why I'm not a big fan of when people go like, well, what would Google do? You're not Google, right? So that's first <laughs> off. Second thing is like, you know, they're, they're still in the expansion phase of, of world domination, right? So just like Amazon. So what Amazon or Google would do is interesting, but it's not really a direct relative um, correlation to what our businesses are because we're not Google, All right? So if it's a private business, it's different. The, the private businesses, the CEOs are nowhere near as sophisticated as a hired gun CEO that went to Yale, Harvard, or some Ivy League school that was vetted out the yin yang, did it 17 times, then finally got to run IBM. And then their challenge is it's, uh, the message gets distorted as the message goes down the leadership ladder in an IBM. Second thing, and this is the Achilles heel of all publicly traded companies, something came out in the 80s called shareholder primacy. And what that meant was the shareholder is, is the prime objective. Increasing value of the shareholder is the only thing that we should be doing. And the, the downside of that is that turns strategic plans into 90-day plans. They're so short-sighted that when the, the economy is going up, like the last 12 years, when it's going up in the early phases, they're getting fat, dumb, and happy. When it continues to go up for 12 years, they're getting fatterer, dumberer, and happierer. Then when the market collapses, they actually pull in the horns because they're not prepared for it because they're too short-sighted. And right. it's essentially because they pay too much attention to a strategic plan. In a private company, it's they're not as sophisticated. They're not scrutinized. Like, let's say I'm your CEO and my breath smells. Are you going to tell me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, because my signature is on the front of your check. Yeah. Right. So let's use that as a metaphor for saying, hey, I got this great idea because every idea I have, I think is brilliant and not all of them are. And most of them aren't sophisticated enough to test the idea with with uh, with a little bit of risk because one, they have no idea how much risk they're actually taking. When yeah. I first started dealing with private uh, private uh, CEOs, I couldn't believe how much risk they were taking and didn't know it. Ninety percent. This is the average CEO, 52 years old. Uh, the average CEOs in my surveys were uh, worth $52 million, 55 if you included their stock portfolio, what have you, real estate and what have you. But 52 of the 55 was tied up into one investment. It's the first thing I learned on yeah. Wall Street not to do. Yeah. So my, what I essentially teach them is how do you diversify a non-diversifiable asset? The second thing is they, they're, they they're very frustrated that they turn to their, their um their think tank and their employee base, and all of them just look at back at them like, what do you think we should do, boss? They're not, in, they're not fostering a, uh, a strategic conversation on a regular basis because, frankly, they're working in the business, not on it. Yeah. A little bit of advice I'd have for them is you go on a long vacation and you take a legal pad with you. Whatever your office calls you about is the very thing you have to fix so they never have to call you ever again. Like my sure. office knows to call me if it's on fire or someone's bleeding. Mm -hmm. If you're, if they know, don't call me about anything else. 
Yeah. So you have, you have to, but that takes a while to get to that point. So that's what we need to hold each other accountable to. And the argument is the windfall of that is not just so that you have better uh, um, vacations or maybe a vacation. Hallelujah. It's actually because now your company is actually worth something because it's not dependent upon you. Exactly. Which is a key measurement for being able to sell it and get that value. So I, and you know, and I, I was remiss because I actually lived through the time in IBM when they discovered how badly they had misjudged the market because they were hanging on to mainframes yep. and they were doing PC sort of as a also ran. And, and it was like P, that whole adage that you never got fired if you bought IBM. And then all these startups started making better printers, better, better monitors, better this, that, and the other. And we just got eat up on all different sides. And so that was, that was actually my period of time when I was in there. So I lived to breathe the idea of the yes man that wouldn't actually, you know, tell people what the market was going to do and, and things like that. But I want to ask you when it comes to these private companies and, um, startups, if you will, and even investors looking at investing in a startup, you know, so often um, they'll get up there and they'll pitch a percentage of a market that's this big market. And therefore we're going to be really, really successful without really understanding why a customer would buy it. And so yes. looking at some of the things that, that you have discovered in all of your analytics and, and analysis of the marketplace, which you did in your first book, which you're working on in your second book, what would be sort of, uh, some, some pieces of advice that, you, to, that would, would make an entrepreneur pause and say, I need to step back to go back to that authentic customer and understand the why somebody is going, how I'm going to get into the market because there's strategy on that, but the why somebody's going to change. I always tell entrepreneurs, there's never a situation that you have no competition, even if you are the first one to the market with something really new and novel because it's the status quo, right? Yeah. You got to yeah. change. They're, they're solving that problem now. When I first went, not to age myself too much, but I was really part of the first part of selling PCs and we were selling against typewriters. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, right. Gotcha. That was how they solved their problem until there was software and stuff. So address that a little bit for that entrepreneur that's listening, that's got this idea or they're starting up or they're, they've got some traction with a product, you know, it was a term that, that got popular for a while with growth hack, where they would do iterations of, of an evolution of a product, finding their perfect customer. So is that the way to do it? Or is there a way to kind of hint at that from data? Just sort of address that. For the audience. Well, I won't say that you can't do it that way. It's not my preferable way of doing it. You don't build it and hope they'll come. It's, it's, a, it's a path to self-flagellation. So I, I don't prefer that choice. So what I'd be doing is, uh, first thing I'd be doing is trying to solve a challenge for someone and just say, hold the context. I, I was just having this conversation yesterday with a company in Hawaii that their, their industry is dying. And I said, well, what you can do is aggregate the industry. It's dying for you. It's dying for everybody. So what you do is you, you, you create a, a retirement plan campaign for older people who have their businesses and are tired of the grind and you take over the back office of everybody and then buy them out. And you can, through aggregation, you can take a shrinking market and make it stronger. That's one thing. Second thing is, is that um, you don't wanna come from wishful thinking at all. 
you want to make sure that you really do have a customer because if you're going to prove to venture capital that your startup is worthwhile, you have to prove that you can produce a 20x multiple in 10 years. So that, that, that's actually a 14.4% compounded rate of return. So you got to be able to produce some type of evidence that they're going to do that. You also have to have some skin in the game. You have to have built it already and that you've got some evidence that you can prove that this is going to lead to something big because look at this marketplace and you know we're the best widget in town. So it's very dangerous to invest in those type of things because all you got to do is like, okay, after you sold the PC uh, instead of the typewriter, eventually Netscape came along. And what happened to that? And then Yahoo. And then what happened to that? So the, it's uh, what you were originally referring to with IBM and the syndrome there was called the innovative, in, innovator's dilemma. The beauty of it is you can eat a publicly traded company's lunch. And the reason why is because they are stodgy. They are so short-sighted that they're basically hiring yes-men. They're hiring people that, uh, that feel good, that they, they toe the company line. And then eventually that is the cause of their demise. It's the, yeah. the term is referred to as creative destruction. So if you want to be the disruptor, you have to do two things. What, what I say is if you're a mid-sized company, like let's say a mid-sized private company is something you can do. So Karen, let's say you're a B2C and I'm a B2B and I do something for you and you're a classic customer of mine. The first thing I teach people to do after seeing me speak is say, listen, Karen, now you can say yes or no to this. I'd like you to say both, right? Let's start with yes. All right, Karen, look, I just heard this guy made me kind of nervous about the future. Are you nervous about the future at all? Uh, yes. Awesome. Are you open to like an, an uncomfortable conversation on occasion? I want to make sure your energies are pointed in the right direction. Because frankly, you deserve to smile more. Like you've done a great job so far, but I want to smile so strong in your face. No one could slap it off. Sound good so far? <laughs> sure. so, so, so what I want to do is I want to sick my nerds on your nerds. We're going to do a massive database analysis because you're a B2C. And what we're going to do is identify what is the magic age of the end user of your product and or service. Then we're going to source all this cool information from the government to see if that number is actually increasing or decreasing in your relative neck of the woods in the relative near future. Sound good so far? Oh, yeah. So I'm going I'm to teach you how to, uh, how to parse your, re your limited resources in the right direction. Now, is that just, that's actually just increased my customer service and increased the likelihood of your check continuing to cash and needing my services. It also gives me access to see uh, what is your end user, and then I can gauge how much investment should I be making in you. And if your future looks awesome, I'm going to give you more love, right? So and then the situation is the flip side of that. Let's say you just say no. All right, so Karen, listen, I just heard this guy made me nervous about the future. Are you nervous about the future at all? No. Awesome. He told me not to worry about you. Click, move on. <laughs> right, what you do is you coach the coachable, especially when, when the market hits the fan and things start to go south. It's a little like triage. Who can, who's capable of listening to you? And this is just the first analysis in your check continuing to cash. When you said yes, you significantly increased the likelihood of, of your check cashing because you were humble. You didn't assume you knew it all. And at, like in your travels dealing with CEOs, have you ever run into an arrogant CEO? Has that ever happened? <laughs> of course. Yeah, that was sarcasm. We got a lot of that in New York. I don't know if you got that down <laughs> south where you are. If you need sure. some, I'll send you some. So, so the deal is, is that um, arrogance leads to all those syndromes we were talking about before, not realizing your potential. What we have to, what we have to ha carry is an ethos of commitment before ego. So this can't be about my ego and how many CEOs have you seen their ego gets in the way, it caps the actual growth of the company. And really this is the truth of everything. 
Peter Drucker once said that the bottleneck happens at the top of the bottle. Uh, what Norma Rosenberg once said, uh, I used to refer to her, she's a personal friend, a genius business coach in Manhattan. Uh, I used to refer to her as the Jewish Gandhi. When she opened her mouth, I needed to shut the hell up. Smartest, smartest person I've ever come across. And like this dainty little grandmotherly way, kind of like Peter Drucker was, right? Only maybe grandfatherly way. So, so what happens is, is that what she said was that the CEO will throw reins, psychological reins around the company and pull it back to the level they're comfortable at. What we have to do is, is also live a life of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Surround ourselves who will take us uh, with people who will take us out to the woodshed and slap us around about something stupid we're either about to do or something that we're currently ignoring in our lives. Yeah. So what we need is more Socratic circles uh, with business being the main thing. And I think your whole concept of compassionate capitalism, uh, if I'm if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. What, what happens is we got we got CEOs that have a lot of people counting on them making excellent decisions. So what I want to do, and it sounds to me like you want to do too is I want to co-opt information from anywhere. It will help them be more successful. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I might sound like Bernie Sanders when I'm saying this, but it's not the employees more important than the CEO. It's but what gets me out of bed in the morning is helping the few protect the many. So I want, I want, I'm a leader of leaders. So how do I get the leaders to take their ownership level and move it up the notch. The benefit is their company will be worth more and yeah. they'll be able to ring the cash register. It'll be more durable, more sustainable, and they can create an extreme valuation exit. And simply yeah. because of this, through commerce, we are capable of what religion hopes to accomplish and what politicians fail at. So, and that's taking care of large scale communities. Yeah. Capitalism gets a bad rap. And the reason why is because it's the single worst best way to ever run a company or or country in the history of the world yeah so if you want to seem like you're some cutting edge intellectual you you attack the establishment and, and besmirch its its reputation yeah name something better yeah there is nothing yeah. better how as long as the ceo takes ownership of the leadership role and then frankly kicks so much butt their foot hurts right right so great. So Mark Perrot, the website to go to is NXT, like next, but without the, that E, nxteconomy.com is his website. And so is there an opt-in there that people get a newsletter from you or what? They, I know and you so, said if they contact you, they could get the bibliography or I could put it into the show notes. What? Uh, do you remember how I told you before that um, our strengths become our weaknesses? So my blind spot is definitely technology that, I, that people have now taken me out to the woodshed and said, I need to be a man who embraces technology, but that's a little aspirational at my, at my stage of the game. I'm just old enough to be the last graduating class that did not have to take typing. So I can't <laughs> type, I can't spell, I don't know what technology is. So I wish my, my staff was hearing you say that because uh, I need to figure out all that type of stuff, but we will eventually. So if people want to opt into an email uh, you're welcome to email me on that. We'll add you to it so you can get a copy of the book. Uh, we've got a, a mailing list and a newsletter coming out. Eventually, we'll have a podcast. Maybe you can come in and be my guest on that. So all those things uh, probably by year end is yeah. what, as my guess is. Okay. So uh, let's wrap up here with uh, whatever your final thoughts might be, but it could be within this concept of of true leaders that are their consciousness of their decisions to solve problems. 
You know, yeah. that was a, a live to procreate, right? That was a term that you used the other day. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so part of it is, is that understand that you're doing noble, necessary work, that this is not just about your business. Your business is actually helping to take care of communities. We can leave the world a better place together, provided you're doing all these things for the right reasons. So what we have to do is we have to be conscious of what our context is. So, and then see if that's congruent with other people. What is my context? Help the few, protect the many. So what does that mean? That's the governor of everything that I do. So if it will help me help the few, protect the many, I do it. So I say yes to it. If it doesn't solve that or serve that, then I don't do it. So that becomes my rudder. So if you're not sure what that is, that's not something I charge for, by the way, if people want to reach out to me, I happily walk you through some exercises about this, about how you can figure out what your higher purpose is and know that there is no separating out the business owner from the business. So as you go, so does your business. So if you truly want to grow, you have to grow as a human being and then your business will grow. Yes. And not just aspirationally, not just in words, but be willing to actually put yourself out there. Like for myself, just so everyone knows, and if you want to reach out to me and hold me accountable to this, the next thing that I need to face is the fact that I'm getting old and that <laughs> I need to take care of my health. So the old me is I was a man who did not take care of my health. And what I recognize now is I have to. Like when I was a kid, I ran like a deer and now I climb a flight of stairs and I get dizzy. So I have to take care of my health. So if you are going to reach out to me in any way, shape or form, then, then, then have the chutzpah to call me out and uh, hold me accountable, ask me, am I taking care of my health? And then I will gladly hold you accountable. So that's the way accountability works. Yeah, I might just be doing that. We, I'm, I'm gonna ask totally. you, if you if you did your down dog today. <laughs> that is something I have to turn my attention to getting into yoga. <laughs> cool. All right, so great. Thank you so very much, Mark, for joining me on the show today. I think uh, it was enlightening to me and hopefully the audience, if you're, uh, listening, add your comments, uh, reach out to either one of us with questions and share this because it's really gets down to the, the nature of business and business growth and truly being, like you said, working on your business to help, help the few to protect the many. I love that phrase. So awesome. Thank you so much. Thank and thanks you. so much for letting me serve my higher purpose here today. Thanks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Onwards and upwards. Yep. Thank you for listening to the Compassionate Capitalist Podcast Radio, where we encourage individual investment in entrepreneurs to create generational wealth and best practices for small businesses to succeed. Help us spread the word about compassionate capitalism by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. The Compassionate Capitalist Podcast is available on most podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. In production for over 10 years, there are over 180 episodes available for your listening and educational pleasure. With over 130,000 downloads, this podcast is rapidly becoming the top podcast for investors and entrepreneurs to get the information they need to create generational wealth through entrepreneurism. This podcast is brought to you by the Business Power Tools, which offers an online collaborative environment for leadership teams to prepare business plans, marketing strategies, financial modeling needed to attract capital and scale a business. Also, Lindio, as a 
Entrepreneurs Resource Portal, providing access to dozens of lenders offering short-term and long-term debt to help business owners manage their financial cash flow and growth capital needs. BizX, creating affordable advertising resources and other tools for entrepreneurs to succeed and create awareness and trust with their customer base. And Launch Funding Network, part of Cougarand Capital Holdings, is a network of hundreds of angel investors, investor clubs and networks, venture capital firms, private equity funds, family offices, investment bankers, and lenders. Please visit karenrands.co to learn more about the Launch Funding Network and our sponsors and to sign up to get our Compassionate Capitalist Coffee Break and learn more about how we can help you succeed.